This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store. Like now, go. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. November 2020 marks 20 years of continuous occupation of the International Space Station. For two decades now, there has never been a single moment when every human being alive has been an inhabitant of planet Earth. Since November 2000, over 240 individuals from 19 countries have lived, worked, slept and eaten on a scientific laboratory orbiting our planet at 5 miles per second. The ISS is a truly international endeavour. This episode, Nisha Beergeraz Hoyle speaks to former NASA astronaut and space station veteran Jeff Williams to find out more about how the station was constructed and what it's like travelling 400 kilometres above the ground. I'll start out by saying that I really appreciate you, uh, your interest in telling the story about the International Space Station. The ISS, uh, I say, uh, often is a story largely unknown and too uh, little told. Uh, so to tell the story, I think, is, is very important. Uh, part One of the reasons that it's, uh, it's uh, largely or not well known to the general public, I think, is, is because it it uh, occurred over a very long period of time. Um, as you uh, alluded to, I started in the mid-90s working on it. Uh, of course, the, the beginnings of it were even before that. It goes all the way back to the 80s, the Space Station Freedom, and in parallel on the Russian side, they were working on their Mir space station and then planning a Mir 2. Uh, when the Soviet Union fell, of course, uh, some Smart folks got together both on our side and the Russian side in 1992-93, uh, formulated this proposal to put Mir-2 and Freedom together. Both were in jeopardy to ever fly uh, because they, they didn't have the support that they needed to uh, get it off the ground. But combining it together at the fall of the Soviet Union, it, it provided the circumstances for the political support to 
to come together and be sustained uh, to actually build it. I joined the program here uh, in terms of the space station as an astronaut in 1996, and we were heavily involved with uh, our getting, uh, beginning our involvement with Russia uh, in those years uh, by flying uh, people, Americans, on the Mir space station, of course, then that set the groundwork for the ability to operate together. Our system and their system, of course, uh, are, are very different, and it took a while to integrate the operations, and that was foundational to be able to then later begin building the ISS. First element launched, uh, as you know, in 1998. Um, it, it was not an easy road to even get to there, not only the political support, but the technical integration of all of these components that needed to go together. And every part of the space station was dependent upon the success of the, the steps that were gonna go before each of those parts. Uh, when you step back and look at the whole assembly, it was, there was, I think, 37 space shuttle flights dedicated to the space station. Most of those flights took, over, took up a major part component of the space station. Some of them were logistics uh, missions that supplied the station. There were also about roughly 40 Russian rocket launches that supported the assembly of the space station as well. Uh, as I said, first element launched in 1998. My first visit there was in the spring of 2000. It was the third space shuttle flight to visit the the, uh, the space station, which at that time was only made up of two modules, one Russian-built module and uh, an American-built module. It was before Expedition 1 got there, uh, so still in the very early phases before its permanent occupancy. Uh, and things were already uh, uh, presenting significant challenges to us. There were subsequent modules that were being delayed in their development. There were some technical issues that were slowing things down. There was financial issues on, on both sides, budget issues. Um, uh, so we, we launched in May of 2000 actually to fix some things that were failing on station to keep it alive. Thankfully, uh, after our mission, um, there was a, a, a critical launch of a Russian component, the service module, uh, that enabled the pathway to launch Expedition 1 in the fall of 2000. So as you're uh, working on your piece here, of course, we're approaching 20 years of continuous human exploration in space, which is a significant milestone, largely unknown to the general public, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Of course, I could go into lots of details. There were uh, many um, challenges along the way. There were uh, technical issues that we had to work through. There were political issues that we had to work through. Uh, there were uh, budgetary issues that we had to work through. Um, there was, of course, the very significant problem uh, and tragedy of, with the loss of the Columbia crew. Three of those crew members were my classmates. So uh, all of them were my friends, um, and that's not just me. They were they were friends and and coworkers of uh, of many people here, specifically at Johnson Space Center. But they were well known in the wider community as well. So that was a a very personal loss and tragedy that uh, we had to work through. Uh, and it it also, when looking back at it, it's a great testimony to the strength of the partnership. Uh, particularly between the U.S. and Russia as we responded to that just to keep the space station 
going and keep it alive while we address the issues that caused the Columbia tragedy, of course, which grounded the space shuttle for uh, over between two and three years um, it, it, in terms of its effectiveness to continue the assembly of the space station. Uh, at that time, we started rotating all of the crews uh, to and from the space station on a Russian Soyuz, and it's it's been that way predominantly ever since. Uh, and the space shuttle, when it started flying again, was used uh, to continue the assembly, not to rotate the, the expeditionary crews. Uh, my second visit to the space station was during the time the shuttle was grounded in 2006. So that became the first of three times that I personally rode on the Soyuz. That mission, uh, Pavel Vinogradov and I, we were the last two-person crew during that period of time while we recovered from the Columbia accident and returned the, the space shuttle to flight status. In fact, halfway during our six-month stay, uh, we successfully returned to flight the space shuttle uh, with the launch of Discovery and STS-121, and they uh, brought... Um, uh, supplies uh, and equipment that we needed, but they also brought Tomas Ryder from Germany, um, and he joined our Expedition 13 uh, to round out the crew of three at the time. And that was a significant milestone because that was the first time that we had a expeditionary crew member not from uh, um, uh, only Russia and the U.S. Uh, as you know, we've got the European Space Agency uh, your own uh, Tim Peake from the UK uh, actually flew with me. I overlapped him on my last visit up there in 2016. Uh, but that uh, Tomas Ryder was the first um, uh, partner astronaut from uh, the balance of the partnership made up of the European Space Agency, Japan, and Canada. One of, one of the things I think about when I think about the International Space Station, what always comes to mind is that it is, it, it's a symbol, it represents um, a cornerstone of the harmonizing effect space can have on nations um, and how it fosters like a collaborative culture. How do you think that this collaborative culture can continue without the ISS? Um, what has to happen from all, all your time you spent with everyone you've met on board the ISS from different nations? What has to happen for that collaborative culture to continue in, in your opinion? Well, I've been on orbit, uh, I recently counted it up with 57 different individuals. And as you alluded to, many of those, that's a significant number. I was surprised when I added it all up. Um, many of those were from our partner uh, agencies, uh, Russia, Europe, Japan, and Canada. Uh, and we all collectively uh, within the astronaut and cosmonaut corps uh, consider this um, program to be very significant in in that we are working as an international cooperation, cooperative effort. We work very well together. The partnership is stronger now than it's ever been, um, and that includes our, our Russian partners, and that in spite of the political and diplomatic issues that have been gone on, going on uh, for now quite a few years. Um, we largely operate uh, under the not under the radar, but uh, under the the political and diplomatic issues that go on that are in the in the media uh, and the daily news cycles, 
Um, and for the most part, the, the different countries involved leave us alone to, and allow us to do our, our work. I think history shows that whenever you have issues between countries, if there's an engagement, uh, largely, uh, as I say, below the radar, below the, the daily public uh, visibility, that engagement is has a very positive impact in the long term to allow countries and nations to reconcile or to avoid escalation in in the in the issues. And I trust that 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 uh, that the ISS has been doing that, uh, particularly between the the uh, U.S. and Russia. So I I consider it a huge component of the contributions that ISS will make uh, and and will be seen in history. And um, thinking about how we move on from from sort of at the model that we currently have on the ISS, um, and thinking about some of the the sort of future economies that we're talking about now with the International Space Station. Naturally, so when you think about an economy, especially when it involves private companies or industries, um, there is always an element of competition between these companies um, to drive down costs, um, to gain contracts, for example. How do you think we can balance enabling an economy with the International Space Station while still making sure that we remember this collaborative culture that has sort of been enshrined over the last 20 years. Yeah, that, and that's a great point because especially in recent years with the, uh, uh, the advance of technologies and uh, the potential for sinister use of those technologies by stealing technology and, and that kind of thing, um, that has become... Uh, it has come more and more on the forefront of how we do business. We we protect data, and all the partners are this way, we protect data more than we did, say, 15, 20 years ago uh, because of the threats out there. So that's, uh, and, and then we have commercial entities that have entered into the onto the stage, uh, and they, of course, they have proprietary interests that, that they want to protect, uh, rightfully so. Uh, so we're we're growing and we're learning how to do that, how to be collaborative, how to uh, join in partnership and combine capabilities, but at the same time um, honor uh, the the necessity to uh, to protect proprietary data and national security uh, interests as well. Uh, so I think the ISS is is maybe a uh, uh, not a test bed for that, but a, 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 a real-world operational um, environment that is kind of forcing the development of that. And of course, that'll be applied to many other things in future collaborations. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned. Um, obviously, you flew um, space flights on the space shuttle and then subsequently on the Soyuz. Um, and obviously now recently we've just seen um, the successful use of the Dragon, SpaceX's Dragon. Um, what do you think about this new spacecraft coming out? It's quite modern. It's got modernized technology um, some of the touch screens, which we were all really worried about when we saw the touch screens, to be honest. Um, and obviously we've seen the SpaceX reland their Falcon rockets. Um, which may have taken you back to your shuttle days. What do you make of this new emerging spacecraft and and space technology? Well, it's uh, obviously a, a big new development in recent years uh, that not only SpaceX but other companies have 
have entered the the stage, if you will, of human space exploration, uh, trying to develop technologies. Of course, a lot of it is is supported uh, by government funding, and that's necessary because uh, until you develop the capability, it's hard to justify the development. Uh, you know, anticipating a business model where it becomes economical. Um, and that's the business of government. So I, I think all of this is appropriate, uh, specifically with the recent flight of the SpaceX test flight. Uh, uh, we were very pleased with the success that we enjoyed. Obviously, it's still very early in its development. So um, uh, so it, the development is not over. We're, we're uh, looking at the data and working with SpaceX to, uh, to continue that. Um, there will be uh, plenty of work to go, not only on that vehicle, but uh, other new vehicles as well that are also in the pipeline. But it's all good. It's all it builds redundancy. It broadens the the spectrum of participants. It, it broadens the the potential for its use in the future. Um, it, it develops uh, tools and and resources that can be applied in different ways uh, that will go beyond the space station. Uh, the uh, you mentioned the landing of the boosters. Uh, of course, that's a that's a, a a new development that has lots of potential to uh, build on the economics and the business model of being able to support uh, launch services. In in this case, um, where you don't have to rebuild a rocket for every launch. Um, so so all of this is very good. It reminds me of the early days of uh, aviation. Uh, when uh, history shows, but the, the the development of the early commercial airlines, if you will, a uh, lot of short hauls, not well integrated, not that many flights, not that many customers, relatively expensive at the time. Um, but now we see where we are today, um, and uh, the world is very dependent upon that uh, in terms of just the, the normal economics and commerce of the world, people moving around all the time. And, and thinking about sort of turning to the future for the International Space Station, there is, there is a lot of debate and discussion happening right now about its fate. Um, so, for example, obviously I've seen a lot of um, NASA's communications about enabling a low-Earth orbit um, economy, um, privatising the operations of the space station. There's also been debates around reusing its components for other future space stations. Do you have any thoughts on what you think should happen to the International Space Station next? Well, I think all of those things that you mentioned um, are important to look at and to try to develop. And, and some aspects of that will will probably come to fruition because it it uh, as it unrolls, it makes sense and things fit, you know, the, the different interests fit and and it, uh, uh, and and you have the the right parties interested in in coming on the stage. Other things may not work, but the, a lot of this is sort of trial and error, and and um, and also it's dependent, of course, upon the continued uh, success of of the operation. You have to keep it flying. Um, but no, I think it's all good. It's it will. It's really. You know, we have a hard time, and the debates occur. We have a hard time seeing what the future holds because we're largely lost in the trees, um, and we will only see the forest in hindsight. Uh, and that's just the way it is. Uh, I think that's always been the way it, it has been in history. Um, 
we're living in the trees and it's very difficult to see the, the forest in terms of predicting where it's going to go. But it is important, I think, uh, to maintain a low Earth orbit presence. Uh, I think uh, that presence, w and it'll be a, a, a combination of both government work as well as uh, commercial work, uh, that presence will be necessary, I think, to, uh, to successfully uh, develop um, an infrastructure at the moon and around the moon uh, and, and to conduct operations around the moon, which I think uh, obviously the policy, the current policy is also to make that as much as practical a combination of government and private uh, enterprise as well. Um, and that just broadens the, it broadens the political support. It broadens the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the support in general to accomplish those things. Uh, it broadens the, the array of stakeholders that are interested in completing it and make, making it successful. Um, so, so it's all, it, it's, it's all good I, um, it, it, at this point. Wonderful. Um, I guess one thing, um, obviously one of the key benefits of the International Space Station, and you will have had a lot of experience of this, is it's the benefits it confers in terms of the experiments, the science it can do, the discoveries that it can help towards making, not just for space flight and long duration stays in space, but also for Earth, people back here on Earth. Um, is there one notable science experiment that you did while you were up on the ISS that you thought when you were doing it that this could potentially be a huge game changer for people on Earth? Uh, it's hard to pick out one. <laughs> uh, I've been involved in hundreds of them, and may, some of them I, I can't even remember or call to mind, you know, without looking them up. But others, of which, course, which stick were, in my memory. Which, were you, which one but, was your favorite? Well, uh, there's lots of favorites. There was one that was just kind of fun because we were flying, you could say, uh, almost like robots where we program programmed them to uh, maneuver around inside the space station. Um, and they talked to each other. There were two of them, and sometimes we had three of them. It was called the Spheres. And it was an experiment that was developing satellite control systems. So that was a lot of fun. There was another one that just looked at fluid, fluid dynamics and uh, the science of capillary flow. That was a lot of fun because it was visually interesting. And uh, it, it's, it's just very interesting in a weightless environment to work with fluids in different shapes. Um, and that one turned out to be uh, more of a breakthrough that I, than I had known. And I didn't know that until the scientists, I got back on the ground, the scientists told me what we had uh, together discovered, uh, and that has gone a long ways. It was um, one that I did actually over two flights, I think 2006 and then again in 2009 or 10. Uh, a lot of the, the most significant experiments for me personally, I think, though, were the, those that studied the human body. Uh, we do a lot of ultrasounds of the heart and, and other body organs that have, that's just very interesting, and we're learning things about that. We're, we uh, breathe a little bit higher level of CO2 concentrations up there just because the equipment doesn't get it down to what we're used to here on the ground. Um, and that has more of an impact than we original, uh, originally or, or previously assumed. Uh, so that's been a, a great area of interest. And uh, in fact, studying the human body, I think, is going to end up being one of the more significant benefits that come from the ISS because we need to develop those countermeasures and have that understanding before we send uh, 
not only back to the moon cruise, but we send our first crew to Mars. I have one more question for you. I obviously have seen your uh, photography and some of the photos you posted on your social media and also obviously you, you published a book of your photos as well um, and I also know that you were part of the expedition that integrated Tranquility and the Cupola um, in 2000, was it in 2009 that expedition? Uh, 2010. Ex- 2010 yeah. sorry yeah it was in February wasn't it how um, yeah. excited were you obviously being quite an avid photographer and very good at it um, when that cupola was installed, and did you get to shoot some photography once it had been installed before you returned to Earth? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I still had uh, about a month and a half, as I recall, maybe a month or so uh, on board, so I, I used it quite a bit to shoot photography. No, that that was a big milestone. It, it's what I call the window on the world because it's the only place on the space station that you can see the entire globe uh, from uh, from a single vantage point. And you're right, I, I uh, grew to appreciate very early on, even back in the 90s before I launched on my first flight, that um, really had to capture the experience. And the best way to do that was through photography. And I had two motivations for that. One was so that I could remember and recall the experience and tell about it. But uh, also probably the bigger motivation was to be able to vicariously bring, bring the experience to uh, people on Earth. And uh, and I prefer personally photography, still photography over video, for example, because you can study and look at a photograph forever. Video goes by and the scene is gone, you know, forever unless you replay it, of course. Um, so that was my motivation. Uh, and of course, the the variety of what you can see from that vantage point is endless, in terms of uh, studying the Earth, in uh, different places on the Earth, and the different lighting conditions, and watching seasons go by. Uh, so that's, that was my motivation uh, to do that. But no, the cupola is the window on the world is, uh, is a, a fascinating place. It quickly became everybody's favorite place to hang out during their free time. Wonderful. It sounds incredible. Um, I, would, I would love to be able to look out at the world from that, from that viewpoint. It must be incredible. And also perspective changing. Yes, yes. Um, Jeff, we are sadly out of time. I would love to sit and talk to you about the space station for for hours, um, but unfortunately, we are out of time. So I think um, all I have to say is, well, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify.